0: wherever you get your podcasts. Mr. How are you, Hubert? Well, I'm fine, and how are you? Oh, I'm just kind of broken up. I'm aching all over. i got a headache and my damn bones the hips hurt me.
1: President Lyndon Johnson wanted his $100 billion tax cut, actually a $108 billion proposed tax cut, something that he and John F. Kennedy had actually proposed before the latter president's death. But to get through and finish Kennedy's tax cut, it wasn't one pitch that President Johnson needed to make for every senator. He optimized his approach depending on who he was talking to. For liberal Minnesota Senator Eugene McCarthy, and I should stress this is before McCarthy would challenge him in a primary many years before, he focused on getting the bill through quickly to keep it from breaking up the civil rights bill that he knew McCarthy supported. If the tax bill got delayed because of a Southern strategy to fight civil rights, Lyndon Johnson said, that just ruins us. I've got to pass taxes and civil rights, he stressed, or I quit. But he shifts gears for his old friend, mentor, and sometimes legislative opponent, Georgia Democrat Richard Russell. This is not being very wise in your Southern strategy opposing this tax, Dick. Since he was an opponent of civil rights, Richard Russell, he needed to pass this tax bill. The Southerners on the Finance Committee should get the bill out to the full Senate for a final vote or you'll have every businessman in the country messing up your civil rights fight you got to pass the tax cut for civil rights. you got to pass the tax cut against civil rights. There's Lyndon Johnson. Then for Florida Democrat George Smathers, to him, he urged, not passing it would cost hundreds of men their jobs. And for Vance Hark, Democrat from Indiana who wanted to hold up the tax cut to protect a music company in Elkhart, he just slammed him. The goddamn band and musical instruments... Your constituents won't be talking about that in next November. What would matter is whether we got prosperity. But none of these senators were the real obstacle. They needed to vote for it, but all of it could be blocked by the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Harry Byrd, a senator from Virginia. It was a regular obstacle for Lyndon Johnson in all of his plans, and he kind of found a way around it, but every day it seems that the news is replete with mentions of Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, kind of a thorn in the side of Democrats and President Joe Biden, who expected their 50-50 Senate to lead to getting everything they want full agenda. It's important in describing the dynamics of today's politics. Certainly the way that the early part, at least, of the Biden administration is going to go down is that, you know, you're proposing a lot of things, and if Manchin is for it, it's possibly getting through. And if he's not, it's not. Many presidents, though, have experienced the same thing. It's not always one senator, but sometimes there's one noticeable, that guy in the Senate, who has foiled their agenda at times. Almost all senators are treated with great deference. They represent their whole state. They're a figure in the media of their entire state. And that puts them also in the view of other states. They're big people in Washington. It's only a club of 100. They stay there for six years. There's also numerous privileges and rules that they enjoy. And because there are 100 people, you're going to go have to go back and need their vote. So even the majority leaders and minority leaders need to work with them. I mean, it's not um, like they're all super powerful and live above the law do whatever they want, but it's something in between. They're quite powerful people. Um, You're going to have to go back, and each senator is going to be an important vote. I mean, if you look at it, if you compare it to the House, you're talking about each senator's at least four votes, which many bills can be decided by in the House. So that's how the Senate works. There's also things where they can block appointments made. They can pigeonhole certain legislation. They can work with their majority leader to block things. Um, It's... And don't forget, when it comes to an impeachment, they're going to be the ones ultimately voting to remove a president. So there's all these immense powers. All that can be exaggerated, too. There's 99 other senators. (laughs) In Lyndon Johnson's case, the thorn in his side was Harry Byrd, who headed up, he was a fiscal hawk, and it must be said, an arch-conservative segregationist against civil rights legislation. And he had one of the most important committees, that Senate Finance Committee which is going to regulate any bill involving taxes and money, which is a lot of significant bills that presidents want to get passed. You could say Byrd was Johnson's mansion, but it actually fits better for John F. Kennedy. I mean, Byrd was just blocking anything that Kennedy wanted to do that was effective and that would... um, Change the dynamic, uh, uh, the fiscal dynamic. And it's interesting, we've talked about it in the past, that Kennedy wanted a tax cut. And that sounds like a very Republican idea. Now, they were looking at it as a Keynesian type stimulus for the economy, putting money back in people's hands. But it's really, in practicality, no different in effect than the type of tax cuts you hear today. It's just the political dynamics were different. This kind of liberal northern senator turned president wanted the tax cut. A few Republicans and many Southern Democrats who were concerned fiscally were opposing it. Um, You also have to consider that it was done in a time of very high income tax rates. And also, it wasn't done when there was 50 other tax cuts done already. It was, you know, kind of a novel thing in an economy that had slid a bit in the late 50s. The bird is kind of wary about it. And Johnson wants to make sure that he, that he gets through Byrd. Byrd was um, a Southern Democrat. He maintained what he called a golden silence in the 1960 election. So he didn't support John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson in their bid to become president and vice president. He didn't endorse anyone. But because he was not endorsing his party's national candidate, it was pretty obvious that uh, you know it was a helpful to Nixon, and Nixon would carry Virginia in that election. Johnson knew what to do. He wanted 108 billion. He figured that he could get 100 billion through. That anything more than 100 billion is going to be a problem for Harry Byrd. Walter Heller, the economist who Kennedy had appointed to work on this tax cut proposal, this economic proposal said, I mean, you shouldn't go any lower than $101.5 billion. And Johnson said, well, you can do that if you can take on Senator Byrd. And if you can't get that budget down to around $100 billion, well, he used some colorful language. Heller got the point, dropped the number. See, Johnson knew something about Harry Bird. Fiscal discipline was not a small matter. It wasn't just Washington showmanship with him. It was life or death. He earned his wealth through Wise Investments. The family didn't have a lot of money. But what he did have, he invested in apple orchards in the Shenandoah Valley. And to keep track of his orchards, he bought a horse and and even a motorcycle that he could whiz around to check the long rows of trees. He was also the publisher of the Winchester Evening Star. His father owned it, but his father allowed that to deteriorate to debt. Harry Bird takes over, faces a crisis. They owe 2500 a lot of money in that time to the Antietam Paper Company. Company refuses to ship more paper. Bird convinces them ship the paper one issue at a time. He had to scrape to find the daily payment. The paper was late sometimes when they couldn't find it. We have to hunt for the cents in that way, you get to know how many cents there are in a dollar. He runs for the state senate in 1915 on a platform of good roads and government. And he wanted to give localities more, say, in the distribution of that money and the type of roads that we, they would be built. He didn't want to just build roads so that tourists could fly into Virginia down them. He wanted to have good farm-to-market roads, which often were very muddy. He also knew that the state of Virginia had a lot of debt, and that's the reason I've always been opposed to bond issues. He wanted roads, but he wanted to build them pay-as-you-go. He successfully, riding around in a Model T Ford, convinced farmers in Virginia to vote against a bond for roads. And it was defeated by a majority of over 46,000, and he became a fixture in state politics for the rest of his life. But it's important to say that Byrd did want those roads, he just wanted them to be paid out of current taxes. In order to work with Burt, Johnson was able to pull off a budget compromise by cutting defense spending in order to make room for spending on needy people and for the tax cut. He finds half uh, billion dollars to cut. And in doing so, he's able to get Kennedy's tax cut. What is the effect of that? We don't know. I mean, the early 60s are a pretty good time for the economy. So um, whether it was the Kennedy ideas or whether it was uh, just the nature of things... Uh, It's hard to say. Take the senator's hide off and rub salt in it. We could say that Millard Tidings would be a good candidate for a Manchin-type fellow, although I think there was more intensity between Franklin Roosevelt and Millard Tidings, the senator from Maryland. He's a Democrat, serves in World War I, becomes a popular figure in his state. He seconds Franklin Roosevelt's nomination in 1932. But other than that seconding of the nomination at the convention, they're not getting all that much from Tidings when Roosevelt becomes president. He's a member of his own party. And again and again and again, whenever Roosevelt's running for president in the state of Maryland, Tidings always endorses them, no matter how much they would quibble at times. And of course he did. Roosevelt was popular in Maryland, and the New Deal was supported well in the state generally. But Tidings votes against all of the big New Deal programs, the NRA, the TVA, the Works Progress Association, the Housing Bills, the National Labor Relations Board. And despite Social Security being popular and getting more than 90 votes in the Senate, Tidings merely votes present. And he does more. As he loses battles and the New Dealers win and the New Dealer programs go through, Tidings lashes out and he warns of a coming dictatorship. But Tidings, you have to understand didn't get to president, didn't, didn't get to office on the back of Franklin Roosevelt. And when people kind of approach him and say, hey, can't you just go along here a bit? For a hell and a brown mule, I'm going to do what I think is right. This quote would be part of his personality and part of his legacy. For hell and a brown mule. We're running the government on hot air and on money from heaven. But it was interesting. And Jim Farley, who was in the Roosevelt administration, pointed out the hypocrisy of tidings at time, that for all this talk about government spending, he proposes building two bridges, one across the Chesapeake, the other in Baltimore. And Franklin Roosevelt vetoed both of those bridges. Couldn't stand them. He told Harold Ickes to take tidings hide off and rub salt in it. And... Ickes did, along with a few other Democratic senators that had voted against the New Deal who were up in the 1938 elections. FDR attempted to take them out with New Deal-friendly Democratic senators. It didn't work at any of the cases. They thought Maryland was the best chance. New Deal was very popular in the state, but... FDR makes a speech for Tidings' opponent on the radio. He reads from a New York Post article that said Tidings had betrayed the New Deal again and again, but... The candidate, Lewis, that they get to run against Tidings, does end up in a little bit of a kerfunkel when he um, gets the endorsement from the Communist Party, even though the Communist Party's running a candidate in the race. And that stuck to him like poison ivy, as far as that. And also, Tidings was popular. Tidings wins overwhelmingly in that election. There's uh, another part of the story to Tidings before we assume that, uh, especially if you're someone who kind of supports the New Deal or, or an FDR fan you know you might be likely seeing him as a villain but there is another part of the story. tidings stubbornness also applies when he's confronted later in the late 40s by Senator Joseph McCarthy who wants him to support his plan of calling out government officials who are communists you know his list and tidings essentially says what would, would turn out to be true you don't you don't have this you're a hoax. You're a fraud. And uh, McCarthy's mad, and he helps to defeat Tidings in the 1950 election. They send so much outside money, very unusual for 1950, into Maryland to defeat Tidings in that election. And he was one of the first high-profile victims of McCarthyism. There's absolutely no evidence that Tidings was a communist anyway, but they managed to take a photo of Earl Browder, the uh, head of the Communist Party, and this is before Photoshop, but they're able to create a composite photograph to make it appear that Tidings hobnobbed with Browder. And they circulate 300,000 copies of a tabloid with that picture. Tidings loses. It's a nasty race. In fact, they're going to challenge it afterwards. They're going to try to unseat the winner, Butler. They do not. Um, Tidings doesn't get a chance to run again. His He's in too ill health. It gets trickier with Bill Clinton because... I don't know whether it's the nuances of, of modern times, but or maybe it's similar. There are a variety of his own party senators that stood in his way at times, and they also kind of helped him. So you think of Patrick Moynihan, New York senator, friend, and his wife, friend to Hillary Clinton and, and all of this. Hillary Clinton's going to end up replacing him in the Senate, but put all that aside, he often was in a difficult position, at least, and probably annoyed personally as Clinton took over and perhaps his young staff mistook the win for guaranteed enthusiasm across the country for every Clinton proposal that came from the White House. Winahan doesn't think he's getting great communication. He thinks that Matt Clarty, who is, um, Clinton's friend and, uh, uh, is serving as chief of staff, but doesn't have any Washington experience. He says, you know, he's, he's like coming right out of the Little Rock Ford dealership and saying things that then he'd find the senator would find out on the television were completely wrong committed a few sins, which um, this happened to Carter a bunch too. You don't want to tell your Senate allies who are trying to pass something, one number that's like an absolute, and then leak on TV or have some of the cabinet officials that you'll actually accept a lower number on deficit re- re- reduction, and that's what they do. But there's a lot that Clinton wants right out of the gate, and it's a, it's a dance because he's trying to both increase spending and reduce the deficit. They want a stimulus package right off the bat, which doesn't succeed. Then they want a larger economic improvement plan. If you remember, you know, 92 election is Clinton wins on the issue of the economy. It's the economy stupid, and you know, this is their plan in early ninety-three. There's a house bill that passes $72 billion over five years. So one of the proposals, and this is put forward by Al Gore, would be a dual deficit reducer, and environmental bill. And it's really important to him in his stand as kind of a moderate Democrat who's also an environmentalist. And, you know, we can look at it today with feelings about how, you know, the state of the environment and climate change and and think about it that way. But this is 1993. Seems like eons ago. He does propose, and Bill Clinton puts it into his plan, a BTU tax. It's a type of energy tax that, would tax fuel sources based on their heat content. So the actual contribution to environmental damage in a form that they're doing. It accepts wind, solar, and geothermal. Those wouldn't be taxed. So it's a way of encouraging development of those sources. It passes the House. A lot of the House members who passed it, do so with great sacrifice, several of them, will be defeated in the 1994 election. Getting BTU'd would become Beltway slang at the time for those who lost re-election by voting for the proposal. And in the House, Clinton's plan only passes 2018 to 2016, very, very close. A number of Democrats who vote against it. It's a combination of spending cuts. It's, uh, but it has as a component a $500 billion deficit reduction plan. They feel like if they reduce the deficit. They can get the Fed to cut interest rates, boost the economy, and also that there would be more investment in other things. The BTU tax becomes the center of opposition. Coalition, the National Association of Manufacturers get involved. The American Energy Alliance gets involved. The NAM says it's going to cost 600,000 jobs. There's protest rallies by Citizens for a Sound Economy in states like North Dakota, Oklahoma, Louisiana, where there is energy production. Senator David Boren of Oklahoma, he's coming from an energy-producing state. He's a Democrat. He just wants this cut. So Boren um, really is opposed to the whole thing, but especially the BTU tax. He thinks it should be a bipartisan economic revival deal. which contain more spending cuts. And so Senator Boren becomes one of the kind of mansions in Clinton's life, uh, working with Senator Jack Danforth of Missouri, To craft an alternative plan, don't tax energy, just cut aid to the poor. There's no votes for his alternative, but he still won't vote for Clinton's plan. So you get to the stage where, with Moynihan, he's in a tough position. He wants to, you know, he's officially the supporter of this Clinton. He's proposing it to the Senate, but he also has problems. And, you know, and there's certain, um, he's not giving the Clinton people everything they want. And so the first Monday morning of the first full week in the Clinton White House, a column in Time magazine carries a challenge from a top administration official to Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He's not one of us. We'll roll right over him. Now, Clinton calls, apologizes. Moynihan's like, well, if you're upset, I'm not. But on several occasions... He's going to seek a little bit of revenge. Here's from Bob Woodward's The Agenda. Moynihan had found that every time he suggested a modification to Clinton's economic plan, the White House would defensively reject it. He wanted to be a good soldier, so decided not to attack the BTU tax head on. He just told Clinton, I need some guidance whether I should continue to press for this. There's a lot of problems, especially David Boren being against it. Let me know what I should do. And then Clinton says to Moynihan, What do you think? Moynihan's like, I think I can't get it through my committee. Eventually, the BTU tax is removed. Gore's despondent. They actually, in Bob Woodward's book, he talks about how Panetta is sent to talk to Gore and console him. He believed that the hard political choices had to be made and enacted into law during the first year. And that meant. The BTU tax could be gone for good. You get to a situation in the Senate where the Democrats hold a 56 to 44 majority. And Senator Sam Nunn of Georgia announces that he would vote against the bill, Boren and a few others. So you now have six Democrats announced in opposition. That means every other Democrat who's on the fence left has to vote for it so it can be 50-50 and then it goes to Gore to break the tie, which he will. So it comes down to Bob Kerry. President Bush is making us feel like losers. Uh, I mean, the new L word in the 1992 race won't be liberal, it'll be losers. Bob Kerry is a senator from Nebraska, and he had told the president previously he wasn't on board. It's not enough deficit reduction, you know, it is funny to hear people talk about deficit reduction. This is this is definitely if you're a fiscal hawk, you know, you could be nostalgic for the when people even talked about this stuff, but you know, it really comes out of um you're not that far in 1993 from the 70s where you didn't see the type of um borrowing that occurred at the federal level and there is still a, a connection to that. Uh and uh, so somebody like Kerry, he's He's a Democrat, but he's from Nebraska. He's got a lot of wealthy donors. He's getting calls from them. They don't like some of these taxes. Um, He also ran against Clinton in the primary, and he's not too happy. He's somebody, you know, Vietnam vet, Medal of Honor, telegenic, somebody who was told that they could possibly be president. Here, Clinton comes out of nowhere, and maybe there's some feelings there. So it's the night before the vote in the Senate, and they're trying to locate Bob Kerry, and they can't. And it turns out he's watching a movie in a downtown D.C. movie theater. So they have to make the decision. They actually send someone to, to, to go in the middle of the theater while the movie's on and grab him and, and pull him out and uh, say the White House wants to talk to you. And they do not. I mean, it, they consider it pretty obvious that if he's watching a movie, he doesn't want to be disturbed. Set up a meeting the next morning. At first, carries against it. But right before the vote, seconds before he goes to vote, he calls up Clinton and says, you have it, and this vote's for free. Clinton's, you know, thank you very much. All of that goes on the Senate floor, votes to make it 50-50 for Clinton's economic bill. I mean, this is Clinton's first legislation right out of the gate. Obviously, it would have been harmful if it didn't pass. And on top of that, he makes a speech criticizing the Clinton administration. He says, yes, I'm not going to vote against this plan, but this is too little sacrifice. This is too small. This doesn't merit what all of the rhetoric that we've heard and things like that. So, and one of the things he says, Kerry says during his speech is, I'm sure the president is watching this. President Clinton actually is not, but he's informed of the comments later.
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: But there's another factor in Kerry's decision, and it's not just, you know, helping Clinton. Moynihan. Moynihan has a good relationship with Kerry. Here's what the New York Times says. The suspicion that Senator Kerry would vote for the bill is grounded largely in his close relationship with Moynihan. The New York Democrat, who is head of the finance committee, is heavily responsible for the budget bill. Moynihan went out of his way last year to support Mr. Kerry's attempt to win the Democratic nomination, and the view was that Kerry had a debt to pay. An administration official put it this way, I can't believe that if at the darkest hour Moynihan says, Bob, I'm calling my chit, Kerry won't go along. That's powerful uh Clinton's bill raised the top tax rate from 31% to 36% on taxable incomes ranging from 115 to 250,000 or couples 140 to 250,000. On incomes above 250,000 the rate would be 39.6%. That's there's been a lot of changes since then, but it did last a long time. It turned out Kerry's vote wasn't for free though, surprise surprise. He insisted Uh, through Senate leaders, that they demand that the White House engage in something that he had asked for before and then dropped when he said this is a free vote, and that would be to have a special commission on spending cuts in government. Not only is this something that annoyed um, the White House, Clinton's quite annoyed by it, it's also a committee that Gore heads. He heads a reorganization of government already, so it's also in competition with what Gore's doing. Now, if Moynihan helped bring Carry along for that crucial fifty fifty vote he doesn't help in other ways. He is not supportive in the end of the Clinton health care plan. Moynihan wants to work with Bob Dole on a bipartisan plan. He sees the Hillary Clinton's Committee on the health care system developed in the White House Task Force as something being put onto Congress instead of being developed with Congress uh, That's not the only one who thinks that um Donna Shalaya, who is the Health and Human Services Secretary, is very surprised to see like a task force from the White House initiating health care reform instead of something coming from Congress. And that is exactly the way President Obama would do it when he starts health care reform in 2009 and 2010, to have it originate in Congress. There's good and bad to that, but certainly it didn't work for the Clintons to do it their way in 93 and 94. Hillary Clinton's going to end up writing Moynihan a letter. I should have taken your advice. I should have done health care differently. So. And then finally, when it comes for a call for an independent investigation on Whitewater, um, you don't see Senate Democrats act as they might today or sort of as Senate Republicans might act today with the, the Republican president. There are nine Democratic senators led by Pat Moynihan and Bill Bradley who join Republican calls for an independent investigation, which makes it impossible for the White House to claim the Whitewater is a partisan, makes it very difficult to avoid appointing an independent prosecutor, which is going to end up, you know, it's, at first it's a much more neutral prosecutor, and you're going to end up getting Ken Starr. I, I would put both Kerry, certainly Boren, John Burrow of Louisiana, also opposed to a lot of what the Clinton administration would want to do. Richard Shelby of Alabama, who's going to end up switching to the Republicans anyway after the 94 elections. These are all kind of uh, Clinton's Joe Manchins of a sort. And what's the lesson? Well, you know, I, I can't say that it's the best strategy for a president. It does seem like you don't get very far with heavy-handed stuff. Um, the Senate's going to be the Senate. The main thing to say that I think history offers is that this is not new. That just because somebody has a D or an R next to their name doesn't mean that they're going to be in lockstep with the um, president in the White House. These senators that opposed um, Clinton, for instance, like Boren from Oklahoma. When was the last time you've seen a Democratic senator from Oklahoma? Or Kerry from Nebraska. It's been a while there, too, since you've had... Uh, um, You know, these states have only uh, become more Republican in time, so they were tough places for these senators. Winnehan's a different animal because he's from New York, and so some of that is just seeing the Clintons come in. uh, It's amateur hour to them, and he's mad, and and, you know, comments reflect that. Uh, At one point during the budget negotiations, he even announces to the newspapers, uh, and this is the guy supporting the budget for Clinton. He comes out and says with reporters there they have absolutely no sense they cannot have everything they want. I'm beginning to feel they think I'm from the backwoods or something. There are just no negotiations going on with them. We have the president's position presented to us, and that's it. So that's Moynihan, the guy pushing their bill through the Senate. So I think that you just see something different. With Manchin, you know, I think people do forget that he's from a state where Democrats for the, I would say, since 2000. You know, I used to be a Democratic state. I voted for uh, the caucus in 1988. Um, it's really changed, and Democrats just don't win there. So you have a kind of special case with him. It might be different with, say, a Christian uh, cinema where you're from a state that's been recently voting Democratic. Um, you know, and I think it just—I uh, guess to me, most of it is that 50-50 isn't really an overwhelming. Uh, Senate majority and you can't hope to get too much. You get the committees, you get the look and the feel of running a government, but you're actually probably going to have to go in those midterms and pick up more seats to get more done if you're the president and that party. Midterms aren't indicated usually for the president of the White House, but it's happened a couple of times, so that's going to have to be your strategy. That's what I think about the whole um, Mansion situation. I also think there could be some situations like Johnson working with Byrd where there's some way to get something done. I think some of those outreaches have been attempted and you know, I don't I don't know whether Manchin's going to be able to get your legislation through either. Like his attempt to find Republican senators for a compromise bill have not been s- successful. I think Republicans in the Senate right now think they'll get it back in next year. And they look at somebody like Manchin as, well, that's helpful, but uh, there's no need to really work with him and craft legislation that'll make Biden look good. That's how I see it anyway.
0: It is, Your Royal Highness, a great privilege for my fellow graduands, honorary graduands and myself, to take a part, if a small one, in such an occasion as today.
1: He was the Prime Minister with the pipe, always smoking that pipe, who spoke naturally in an accent which would be odd-sounding for many Londoners or those in the south of Britain. It was a Yorkshire, North England accent, Harold Wilson. And they said that Harold Wilson even tightened his Yorkshire up a bit at rallies and perhaps Really didn't like a pipe, which would be associated more with a common person, like to smoke a cigar.
0: Ever since the project of this university was turned from a dream into an impending reality, I have frequently in private, not least to schoolboys who sought my advice on this matter, expressed the view that Lancaster would be a particularly exciting conception, a particularly good university to try and get into. And as the public orator has made clear for a Yorkshireman to express this view, it was no easy thing to do.
1: That's him. That's Harold Wilson, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, two different times, non-consecutive, actually led his party to four different election victories. But if people know him now, they know him for one thing, and that's his portrayal on The Crown, a series on Netflix where he is among the prime minister's young Queen Elizabeth's favorite. They just seem to get along well, the closest relationship. And it's unexpected, Uh, and it's true, that series to the story from everything we know. um, Labor Party's more radical positions trend towards liberalism, usually not associated with the conservative royal family. Some labor were Republicans, which in UK terms means they prefer a republic to a monarchy at all. Wilson was an odd bird, even within the Labor Party, though. Civil servant, very well educated, rose to power as the older people in the Labor Party, either became too old to serve or had died. The last time the party was in power was in 1950. So he's coming in 1964, got kind of a clear hand. He's made a great speech at a Labor Party conference in 1963 where he's talked about modernizing. Under Wilson, the country would end the death penalty, legalize abortion for medical circumstances, decriminalize laws involving homosexuality, greatly increase the number of common schools that people could attend. He wasn't just liberal, though. And he wasn't just working class. He brought a modern sensibility. Historian Ralph Fiel Samuel says, The North, where Wilson came from, was definitely mod. He, Wilson, was not mod. But the setting was. It was more on the side of radical change, for a new vitality in place of the effete establishment. A friend of Wilson said that he offered the reality of a modern man, wore normal suits, spoke like a regular person, and more importantly, he knew his own party's ideas had to be put in a modern context. We are redefining our socialism in terms of the scientific revolution, he said. He didn't want technology to just proceed where the people were being left out of it, but he also didn't want people arguing for some type of backwards socialism, some type of anti-technology or anti-modern socialism system. For some, particularly the labor left, they didn't know what that meant, and they thought he was wiggling and possibly he was selling them out. yet, Wilson knew how to win. He did it four times. And he also knew how to invoke left language, that labor was a moral crusader, it was nothing. That the party couldn't just be a political party, it had to always be taking moral stands. Where at the same time, doing the compromises he needed to stay in power. His party had existed since the 1890s, yet it only had a few years in actual majority government. I'd like to look at some of the aspects of Harold Wilson that are relatable to today's issues. His university idea, his decision on the Vietnam War, and his decision on Europe, or more to the point, his decision for a referendum, all are interesting still today, as is always. It is always interesting and relevant to talk about the relationship between presidents and prime ministers. First of all, and I think like this is not maybe well known in the United States, but it's really the most important thing Wilson did, according to him. And then he proposes the idea that Britain would have an open university. Again, looking at how can we achieve some of the socialistic ideals through modern technology. Well, look at this television. Why can't we utilize this television, modern mails, uh, modern parcel delivery, To enable everyone to attend an open university, utilizing correspondence and television, accessible to everyone who could complete entrance exams and pay greatly reduced fees. Now, Wilson went to a good school, but he knew that not everyone could. But he enjoyed education. It was something that he relished, and he was a critic of the UK system. And in addition to this open university, he's also going to greatly expand Education and schools generally. The Labor Party at this point is going to encourage localities. If you want, you know, it's not that much unlike what we do here. It's like if you want this funding from the national government, you're going to have to build a school. You know, the noticeable development is a university of the air that he calls for to provide an opportunity to those who couldn't attend college or had to leave because of family obligations or because of their work. Historian. Philip Ziegler says, if there was any success story which gave him unequivocal satisfaction, it was the open university. He jealously guarded it when every other sacred cow was suffering during the crises of 1965 and 1966. The open university continues. Classes would be conducted via correspondence and over the television. Most likely it would work like this. You would receive your materials that you had to read. Through correspondence, you'd receive study guide questions and exams through correspondence. Once a week, there would be a show on television for the course that you were taking on a given time. and would also be enhanced with local tutors throughout the United Kingdom that would be able to work with you on your um, work with a local group on studying the particular course. Items like books, tests, uh, reading supplements would be mailed. Even um, science kits, la- little labs with microscopes and other items would be sent out. This still exists, the Open University. It's not as cheap as it was then. Then it was very cheap, especially if you were someone who was unemployed. might be paid by the local council at that point. Um, it could be some education could be pla- paid for by employers who would cover the costs.
2: We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Um, even as of um, you know where now it might cost say seventeen to twenty thousand dollars to get a university degree on the Open University, and that's still pretty cheap in American terms, at least. Um, that's an increase because of twenty ten austerity cuts. The uh, even in 2000, you were looking at a. Um, I'm doing you know pound conversion in my head here, um, can add anywhere from like eight to ten thousand dollars. But it is interesting this Harold Wilson idea of the open university in today's when we're talking about virtual is that this existed and it was running as early as 1970. The, the decision was made in the 60s to do it, and it's running in 1970. It opens up a lot of opportunities for people who were unemployed in the 70s and 80s to get some education, to build up math, to for people who didn't get a high school degree to be able to complete it. Um, I was reading on Quora, which is a site where people ask and answer questions, about if there was anybody who had attended open university and there were many, many people and they had great things to say about it. It was very cheap in the seventies, you know, you course for 25 pounds. Um, and you know, well before COVID and well before the lockdowns and remote education and things like that, the open university in the United Kingdom, from my understanding and reading some of the core comments that people have attended has a very good reputation among employers. Some comments made by people who attended were that their employers recognized that, oh, you went to open university. That means you had to be a bit more disciplined than other people. So that was one of Wilson's little-known legacies. For most in the United Kingdom, Harold Wilson's decision not to send British troops under tremendous pressure from Lyndon Johnson was a correct one and something they associate with his legacy in a positive way. This is particularly true after what was seen as a mistake in the United Kingdom, of Blair sending uh, George W. Bush British troops into Iraq. Now, he's under great pressure to do so. Even within the Labour Party, there are conservatives in the Labour Party who said. that this is this is an important anti-communist struggle. We can't allow our party to be associated with the communists. We have to help out in Vietnam. But more, the most important thing, and this is always the tenet of British politics, is that look, we have this historical legacy even if it's not always good at times. But since World War II, we have a positive historical legacy. And we have a special relationship between the United States and Britain. And so Wilson was going against that a bit by not listening to Lyndon Johnson's suggestion under tremendous pressure from the foreign office you got to work with the Americans. We're not going to get the kind of summits and meetings we want from the Treasury. There's certain economic things that Lyndon Johnson can hold up that we need. Lyndon Johnson at one point asked Harold Wilson, reportedly, but you could see him saying this, I don't care if you send a platoon of bagpipers there. Just send something. Wilson isn't going to do it because even that is making Vietnam an Anglo-American operation. And whatever tarnish was going to occur to America it was going to occur to America and britain at that time as i believe blair found out so he the farthest that he's going to go to please his own party's conservatives is to say that look america's morally right in doing this we support america but we're not supporting with troops or linking ourselves to this in any way lastly we should note wilson's contribution to the uk joining the common market and it comes a little bit from what we just talked about the testy relationship with the united states kind of throws into question this relationship economically. Is the United States always going to be there for us? Or the minute we don't support something, they keep, you know, this happened with the Suez crisis, and now it's happening with um, Vietnam, is it the minute we don't support them, they're pulling some economic levers against us. I mean, the relationship, when you think about it, from the 1700s to the 1960s has really changed and is upside down now with the United States on top. So how do we get a little more? And they start looking across the channel to Europe. The other thing is that economic growth is pretty good in the U.S. and it's very good in Europe right now, but it's not so great in Britain. So what are we doing? And there's a powerful incentive to link up. Um, This is a problem because most of his labor party doesn't want to do it, but in 1967, Wilson applies to join the European Common Market. And it's blocked by a French veto. It's up to the next prime minister because Wilson will lose an election. Edward Heath gets in, conservative. And Heath is able to put together a European Common Market deal. Wilson's now in opposition. He's the opposition leader. Some Labour Party members su- supply votes needed for Heath to get this treaty through because he's got his own problems with uh, Euroskeptics in the Conservative Party. So Wilson kind of You know, plays a shifty game there. We're allowing some people led by a conservative member of the Labor Party, Roy Jenkins, who supports joining the common market. This is a very pro-business action at this time. It's it's odd to see the difference between the joining Europe at that point, which was seen more as a conservative, but definitely pro-business action and um, very opposed by some of the trade unions, which make up Labor Party support. Uh, And also, you know, opposed at the time by people who said we're giving up our sovereignty we had for a thousand years. Wilson comes back to power in the 1974 elections, and during that elections, he what he says is if labor gets in, we're going to give you, the British people, a referendum so you can decide. And he does, and that referendum is conducted in 1975. They send out brochures that literally say, this government's ready to do whatever you want. You want us to go in the European Union? We will. The common market, we will. You want us not to? We won't. But at the same time, Wilson has made some pro-European statements. He's definitely batted down. I, I think more importantly, he's batted down some of the arguments on the other side. He's also renegotiated some of the terms of the agreement to make it more friendly for labor unions. The other thing that's changed is the French government's changed and a more pro-French, uh, pro-UK pro French government is, wants Britain in, so they're willing to help negotiate. Overwhelming, over 60% of British people vote for all four nations, Scotland, Wales, England, and Northern Ireland vote to enter the European Union. And um, it's really a very crafty political move to allow this referendum at the time. And it is interesting to to remember that um, while Brexit got the British out of the European Union, there was a referendum to get them in as well. The relationship between Joe Biden and Boris Johnson is good, really better than one could expect. Now, it's not the kind of like one on, you know, tight political alliance that we kind of saw with Trump and Johnson. Hey, the two guys' hair looks similar or whatever, or they have like really close politics. And Trump kept saying, we're going to make the British treaty number one. Some of the... UK ministers speaking off the record, some of the UK um, trade negotiators saying they actually don't like that talk. It's not helpful to Britain to say, we're going to throw all the other countries uh, to the end of the line and UK. And then that deal never happened during the Trump presidency. So the relationship between Joe Biden and Boris Johnson seems pretty good considering they inhabit different zones of politics. One of the things I think Biden is looking at is that you still go back to that you special relationship, and that Britain can still be an ally in a lot of things, even if there's going to be some uh, slips here and there. Climate change is a big issue where Boris Johnson is for it. Um, Biden has said, you know, we're going to be there with bells on for the conference that Biden that Boris Johnson is sponsoring. Uh, they've already made deals on British beef in the U.S., working on lamb. I mean, literally have that quote from from Biden at the press conference. We're working on the lamb. Um, deal on Boeing Airbus, deal on British whiskey, um And Johnson said, like Biden, he's a bit of a trained fanatic as well. So I don't know. You know, uh, it's good to talk about Harold Wilson in the context of the relationship between U.S. president, British prime minister, still very important, um, still a go to country for the United States on the on the world stage, Um, even though Johnson would get perturbed by Harold Wilson not helping him out in Vietnam. It was the first country he'd go to when he was thinking of how we're going to develop a peace process what four countries are going to be in the table and it's u.s soviet union north vietnam south vietnam and uk right and so um y- you know there's still that tight relationship that's that's very important well this is a quick one a couple topics i want to thank you for listening the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and uh, Remember that Patreon help give us some support. You get some episodes early. You get some leftovers episodes and other things, and also the joy that you know you're, you're helping out the podcast. Thanks for listening.